Now, let's read um, a portion of God's Word found in Luke chapter 18. You uh, follow me as I begin reading. It, um, it begins in verse 35 and goes through verse 43, and it reads like this. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, I love to bring people to this story. And maybe not for the reason that you think, but um, it allows me to address an issue that doesn't get a whole lot of um, airtime. Um, and I want to devote our time this morning to that. I may regret. I may end up this morning regretting doing what I'm about to do. But my hope is that you will leave here this morning carrying a book in which you have more confidence, to which you are more devoted, and you are more determined than ever to see its truths fleshed out in your lives. Um, folks, the, um, the book that I'm referring to, of course, is this one. I'm hoping that you will leave here this morning delighted in the book of God. Now, with that said, let me explain further. I'm making an assumption, but I think it's a fairly safe one, um, that all of us have been exposed to, subjected to, heard of, read about some effort on the part of someone to try and undermine your confidence in this book. Maybe it was your ninth grade biology teacher or a college professor who taught philosophy or, or maybe the media. You know, it seems to me that around Easter time, there's always some new discovery that, um, that has been made and it's always trying to undercut the resurrection or the Bible or something. But I'm assuming that all of you have heard uh, in some form or another an effort to try and debunk the authority and reliability of this book. Why, why we've, heard, we've heard all sorts of things um, in, in that effort. We, uh, we've heard um, this book is a means of oppression. It oppresses people. <coughs> Pardon me. We've been told, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that it's just one of many other holy books that are available to, to all of mankind. 
Um, and, and it's really nothing more, we're told, than ancient Jewish literature. That's all it is. And, and by the way, it is so out of date. I mean, it's on the wrong side of history. And it is full of contradictions. When I hear that one, um, there's alarms that go off inside of me. And I have in the past um, done this very thing I'm about to tell you because of my ugly self. When somebody comes to me and, and sits in my office and says that, you know, the Bible is so full of contradictions, here's what I do. I'm not sure this is, um, uh, tr don't try to do this at home, I'm an expert. Um, <laughs> uh, they say they're so full of uh, contradictions, and so I take a Bible, and I throw it into their lap, or toss it into their lap. And I say, um, so you say that there's so many contradictions in this book. Would you show me one? I have not yet been taken up on my challenge. Now, gang, that's not to say that there aren't people out there who could take me up on my taunt. Um, and if they could take me up on that challenge, they might ask us to take a look at our text. Because there is in it that which is considered to be a contradiction. And so that's why I said I love to bring people here. Because it gives me a chance to address that whole notion. Um, and in a way that I hope you'll be able to leave here holding on to a book that in which you have so much more confidence. Let's see if we can do that. Um, folks, uh, the contradiction itself is found in the first verse. Actually, there's two contradictions in verse 35. Um, I mean, you get your money's worth this morning. Not just one, but two found in verse 35. Now, gang, you've got to put your finger in verse 35, and you've got to flip over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Now, <clears throat> Matthew tells this same story about the blind guys. Um, it's called a parallel passage. Um, Mark tells the story too. It's uh, the same story, same event, told by three different people and included in the New Testament. Well, here's Mark's ver excuse me, Matthew's version of this story. First of all, look at Luke 18, and let me read you verse 1 again. Uh, verse 35 again. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Do you see it? There it is. He drew near to Jericho, a blind man. Now go to Matthew. Um, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men. So you see, the, the, the contradictions has to do with, number one, 
Luke only mentions one blind man. Matthew mentions two. Now, gang, if you mention two, there is certainly one. Um, and the writer has the prerogative to highlight the, the, the parts of the story that he thinks are, are important. So that's not a contradiction. That's just a different perspective of the, of the writers. But here's the biggie. Oh, it is so large. Look, uh, as, um, as they went out of Jericho, says Matthew, Luke says, as they drew near to Jericho. I mean, throw this thing away. Did you see that? Did you see that contradiction? I mean, Luke says that they were drawing close to Jericho. And Matthew says that they were leaving Jericho. Why? I certainly wouldn't believe in a book with contradictions like that. Now, gang, let's take a look at it. First of all, tell me, what do you know about Jericho? I bet you, particularly if you were raised in the churches as a child, that in a Sunday school class, you were taught about the story of Joshua taking Israel to fight against Jericho. Remember, they walked around it one time and then seven times that the walls came tumbling. There's even a little ditty that goes along with it. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, down, down. Do you remember? We, we all kind of squatted down. Remember that? Well, well, I know that about Jericho. Well, yes, that's, that's, that's certainly good. That story is, t- you need another finger. Um, if you can find Joshua 6, I want to show you something about th- that story that you might not have seen ever before. Um, you know the story. The walls came tumbling down. Jericho is destroyed and Israel wins. At the end of that battle, in verse 26, Joshua 6, 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now, do you see what that is? The battle has been fought. The battle has been won. And so the victorious general, Joshua, pronounces a curse on the ruins of Jericho and says, Cursed be the man who rebuilds this city. He will rebuild its walls at the, at the cost of his firstborn. And he will rebuild, he will hang its gates at the cost of his youngest son. That's the curse. Guess what? Oh, 100, year, 100 years or so later, in 1 Kings 16, need another finger. In 1 Kings 16, let me read you this. 1 Kings 16 at verse 34. 1 Kings 16, 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, 
and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. Okay, you got that? Uh, Israel crosses the River Jordan. They fight Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. Jericho lies in ruins. And, and, and Joshua says, nobody better rebuild this because when they do, it's going to be at the expense of their firstborn son. And if you hang gates, it's going to be your secondborn son. A couple hundred years later, about a half mile down the road, a guy by the name of Hiel rebuilds Jericho. He gets his walls finished. His firstborn son dies. He hangs the gates. His secondborn son dies. All according to the word of the Lord through Joshua back in Joshua chapter 6. You got it? Okay, guys, here's the point. There were two Jerichos. There was the ancient city of Jericho that lay in ruins. And then there was the one that Hiel built at the expense of his two boys. At the time that Jesus was walking through that area of the world, the, the Jericho that was standing was the one that Hiel built. Now, if you're a Jew and you're with Jesus on this day when the blind got, this blind man got his sight and you're writing about this event, which Jericho would attract your attention? The Jericho that is a part of my history, a part of my lineage, a part of God's great deliverance to Israel, which of course lay in ruins, but that Jericho. And so Matthew says, as we were leaving Jericho, but if you were a Gentile like Luke, and you're writing the same story, which Jericho would attract your attention? Well, the one that was standing right there. So Matthew says, as we were leaving Jericho, the one that lay in ruins, Luke says, as we were entering Jericho, the one that was built by Hiel. And all of a sudden, the contradiction goes poof and it's gone and I say unto you ladies and gentlemen most of the so-called contradictions that are supposed to be in this book are just about that easy to explain And may I add this, most of the contradictions that are so offend the critic have nothing to do with 
the overall message. In fact, let's just say I was wrong. I'm not. But let's just say I was. Does it matter whether they were coming out of Jericho or going into it? Doesn't change the message. Doesn't change the story one bit. And most of these things are like that. But most of them are easily soluble with just a little bit of insight into the text. Now, guys, um, you've got to understand that the critic of the Bible who told you in the ninth grade or in your sophomore year at university that the Bible was nothing more than ancient literature has a vested interest in that being true. He's got to continue to undermine the authority of this book so that he can go on in his life of unbelief. But my point for you as the people of God this morning is to assure you that the book that is sitting in your lap It's very trustworthy. It's very reliable. It is, in essence, the mind of God as black words on a white page. Now, if you are one of those who have dismissed this book, or maybe you'll just call it, I'm just indifferent to the whole thing, or you are maybe just put me down for no interest. All of that because you bought into this narrative that you heard from your ninth grade biology teacher let me respectfully ask you to pick it back up Read it. Ask God to meet you in the pages of this book. I dare you. Folks, I I hope this will go without saying. But the Bible has one central imperative message. Oh, to be sure, it it gives us definitions of right and wrong. Um, It gives us directives and guidance. It, 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 It gives us comfort. Yes, yes, yes. But the point of this entire book is to tell you how a holy God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon our iniquity, this book is given to us to describe how that God has designed a way 
for guilty people like us, not, 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 um, not good people, not, not um, um, uh, you know, um, upstanding people, but rebellious people, uh, wayward people, stubborn people, and even wicked people like me. <clears throat> this book has a message contained in it that's going to tell me how is it that somebody like me can have my sin forgiven and be restored to a relationship with God and all of these other stories that are contained in here are in there to simply enhance that single imperative message. How a holy God can be reconciled to someone as guilty as I am. And that reconciliation coming through the life and death of Jesus Christ, the sent one, the Son of God. Everything else in here is, It's just a small contributing factor to help me understand that. That God, that this God who demands perfect righteousness has then made that righteousness available to sinners and guilty people like us through faith. In Jesus Christ. That this God, in His mercy, has gone on to describe that central message in a book. A book. in which I can rest. Actually, that's not well said. I don't really rest in the book. I rest in the one who is described and portrayed in this book. We rest In the life and the death of Jesus Christ, all of which is described accurately in this book. To ignore all that, 
would be done at the cost of your everlasting soul. Take it up. Ask God to show you himself in the pages of this book. Our Father, we are grateful that you have made a you have given us a remedy for our sin, a remedy that is found in Christ and him crucified. And that we, as people who deserve punishment, uh, have gotten forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And Father, uh, if you have brought people here this morning who have not yet seen the great beauty of that Savior, would you open their eyes to see it now? Would you allow them to find refreshment in what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us. But Father, also for those of us who have stepped inside the household of faith, would you make us not simply students of your word, but lovers of your word. People who find its truths exhilarating and will leave here today more determined than ever to have those truths fleshed out in our lives. We ask all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.